faith in Pastor Mark. Did he not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see. All right. Well, my name's Ross, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I'm glad that you're here. I'm at least one of the pastors until the end of the day. And um, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we'll be. We've been walking through Paul's letter to Corinth over the last several months, and we've come to what most commentators and New Testament scholars agree is one of the most difficult passages that, uh, is, that Paul writes. Um, and it's been difficult for the history of the church to, um, to get at what exactly is Paul, does Paul mean here and how are we supposed to apply what it is that Paul is writing and how are we to understand it and what's going on behind uh, this passage that leads Paul to write the words that he writes. And um, I think throughout the centuries, one of the things everybody would agree is that it's an easily misunderstood passage, and, and we're all um, in danger of doing that. So, I, I just I want to offer to you this morning, I stand here in humility. Um, I stand here uh, not dogmatic this morning about anything, but I do want to, um, as faithfully as I can, and, and assure you, I've worked really hard uh, this last couple of weeks on this passage and want to uh, want to talk through it. A couple of things I would say. One is a difficult passage. Um, we want to be careful that um, in passages like this, that we would um, we'd be careful not to build an entire theology around a difficult passage. Uh, rather, we would ask the Lord to help us this morning to worship. We, we, we want to worship. We, we, we want to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And that's the primary goal in studying any of these passages. And so we would want to be careful not to build an entire theology about it. And um, the mistake that we can make is that we, you know, we take a, a passage like this and we make the primary purpose of the passage... We make the primary purpose that of policing somebody else or some groups of people. And that's not the primary purpose of this passage or any passage, by the way. The primary purpose is to lead us to worship. It's God to reveal word about who he is and who we are and how we are to respond. And so I would say the primary purpose is not to point a finger or to think, you know what, but 20 people need to hear this and get in line with whatever. That would be, a, be the wrong way to do it, all right? So I'm going to read it. Some of you are like, I have no idea what 1 Corinthians 11 is. Well, you probably do. You just didn't know it, all right? Here, here's what it is. I'm going to begin 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul writes. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head 
covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, for he is the image and glory of God. But woman is a glory of man. For man was not made from woman, nor woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does the, not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. I pray that you, um, Father, you'd, you'd cut through some of the uh, distractions uh, that might arise in the next few minutes and that we would be open to how your Spirit would Help illuminate your word. Father, I'm aware this morning that we could come away um, knowing more, but not loving more. And so I pray that you would guard us from that great error to just know more. As you recorded, as Paul writes in just a couple of chapters, it would, we can know all the things, but if we have not love, we know them in vain. And so, Father, I pray you do that this morning. I pray you would draw us to your Son, Christ. You would make us more like him. That, Father, you would draw us to each other in this room and in this fellowship. That we would love one another more. And we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, as I um, walk through this, I want to remind you of a couple of things uh, before we get into it, and they're helpful by way of helping us interpret this passage. And I want to say from the outset, I'm in debt this morning to um, a New Testament scholar named Dr. Lucy Pepier. Uh, she's not the only one, but she's primarily the one. I had an elder uh, several weeks ago, say, hey, have you heard um, this podcast or whatever? And she was featured on it and it's a trusted, you know, good conservative podcast. I said, no, I haven't heard it. Sent it to me. I listened to it. I thought, oh my goodness. I, this, is, this is as good a scholarship as I've heard on this passage ever. And I've read a lot of commentaries. I've, I've done a lot of research. I ended up buying all her books over the last couple of weeks. 
and, and reading them. And, and I'm convinced, um, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't the right way, but I can tell you this, there is nobody convinced of the right way to read this passage. And I want to offer you that I, this is the best way I know to read it today. And um, uh, so, if you don't agree with it, it's okay. I, I'm not asking for a dogmatic agreement in this. But I, I want to do my very best to take the text at its face value without doing gymnastics with the words or the grammar or anything like that. I want to walk through the text as it is given to us. And I think there are a couple of things helpful to remember that helps us read this text. One of those is Paul's style in this writing, the genre. At several places in this writing to the Corinthians, Paul has used the device rhetorical questions, where he asks a rhetorical question for the purpose of correcting an error. The Corinthians were doing something. They were in error in a way that they were thinking. And so Paul will use a rhetorical question to highlight their error and correct their thinking. If you turn back just real quick so you can see it, turn back to chapter 9, you see he begins chapter 9 with 14 rhetorical questions in a row to correct their thinking about who Paul is as an apostle and his kind of authority with them in that apostolic role. Here in chapter 11, we're going to run into a couple of rhetorical questions. Secondly, one of the strategies that, that Paul has used, and most every scholar that's writing on uh, Corinthians will point to, yes, this is in fact what Paul is doing. Paul is in, as he's writing this, he's in a dialogue with the Corinthians. If you remember from the beginning, we said there are two reasons Paul writes this letter. One of those reasons is because he has heard reports from Chloe's people about some of the behavior and activity of the Corinthian church. And so he writes to admonish them about that. Secondly, he is writing in response to a letter that they wrote him asking him some questions, and he is replying to that, and in, often he is admonishing them for the behavior and activity in the church. And sometimes as he is writing to them, he quotes them, and then in quoting them, turns and corrects them. Just go back with me if you've got your Bibles in front of you, and if you don't, if you can put one in front of you. I think you'll be greatly helped this morning. Just pull up a phone app or something. But chapter 6, verse 12, I just want to show you where Paul quotes something the Corinthians were saying, and then he will correct it. If you, we talked about it back in verse, uh, when we were looking at chapter 6, verse 12. He says, uh, he writes, and in, in, in all the translations, except for the New American Standard, they don't include the quotation marks, but in the ESV, the NIV, all, is, is, all things are lawful for me. That's in quotation marks. And he's quoting the Corinthians. And it may be that Paul's quoting the Corinthians who are quoting Paul. But the problem is they're taking something Paul taught 
and they've taken this truth and they've made it the whole truth about something. And Paul now is correcting their misapplication of a truth. He says, all things are lawful to me. That's what you say. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated by anything. And then what he does is he begins to correct the errant behavior born out of this misapplied truth. And that so happens in chapter 6, the errant behavior is that the men were going to the temple prostitutes to worship, so to speak. And he says, when I said all things are lawful, I did not mean that. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Here's another example. Writing to them, they've asked some questions, and he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then in quotation marks, meaning they wrote this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He means the context is in marriage. And so he answers them back. This is what you say. This is what you're teaching. This is your practice. And then Paul says, you're crazy. Nobody does that. And they said, well, we, we thought if we did this, we'd be more spiritual. Paul says, no, that's not the case. All right? And even in that, what he says is, hey, by the way, men, you don't have authority over your own bodies. Your wife does. And vice versa. He he includes, he elevates the position of women here. He elevates their rights in this, by the way. All right, um, give you one more. You can go to uh, chapter 8, verse 1, and they were talking about all the knowledge that they possess. And Paul says, yeah, maybe you do possess all this knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And you, you, you're, mis- you're misappropriating the importance of knowledge here. Because love's what's most important. So, there's, there's that that's going on. Paul's quoting the Corinthians or using rhetorical questions, and he's highlighting where they take a truth or a belief and they distort it. Now, I want to suggest here in chapter 11, Paul is doing both of those things. That he's going to be quoting the Corinthian position or the Corinthian theology in a couple of places and then clarifying their errant theology with some contrastive statements and some rhetorical questions. Now, there's one more thing I want to make you aware of, and then we're, we're going to jump right into this. Um, and it's a side note, and there's somewhat of a puzzlement, but when you, if you were reading Acts chapter 18, verse 18, Luke, as he's writing this, in Acts 18, 18, he gives us one of the most seemingly unusual details in all of Acts. He tells us that on a certain day, Paul had a haircut appointment. Listen to it. Acts 18, 18. After this, and the after this, by the way, 
is after Paul leaves Corinth. He has been in Corinth for 18 months. Before he got to Corinth, he took a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, part of what is included, is that you do not cut your hair. Now listen, after this, after Paul leaves Corinth, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila and at Centria. He'd cut his hair for he had been under a vow. And you think, Luke, I like knowing about, you know, my apostle, but why did I need to know that he got a haircut? And I think maybe the Holy Spirit is helping us understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. Because if I know this, if, if Paul, let me just say it this way. If I did not get my hair cut for 18 months, you'd tell my wife all about it. All right? You'd be like, man, what is wrong? Is he okay? Is he all right? I mean, Seriously. Do we need to have an intervention? Is he, is he doing drugs? I mean, what's the thing? Why is his hair so long? Because does he know it looks bad? No, it looks worse with it long. If you didn't cut your hair as a man for 18 months, assuming you had hair, um, but if you didn't, you, your hair's going to be what? Long. Okay, just remember this as we walk through this passage. Now, um, by the way, it's not the only one who had long hair in Scripture. Samson had long hair, remember this? Probably John the Baptist, anybody that took a Nazarite vow, Numbers chapter 6, verse 5. So anyways, long history of Jewish tradition of long hair. And it, Scripture, except for here, doesn't really have anything negative to say about that. Now, let me walk you through this. Here in verse 2, I think um, this is explanatory, and I'll show you something about it in just a minute. But he says, now I commend you. So I know I've been hard on you up to this point, but you need some hard things said because there are some things that you've been doing in a ways that you've been practicing in church that, that, quite frankly, you've gotten wrong. But now I commend you. Because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. I've told you some things and you've, been, you've hung on to some of those. We'll find out in verse 17, not everything have they held on to, but he's trying to be positive where he can here. And then notice verse 3. It starts with a contrastive conjunction. But, <clears throat> so I commend you, but... I want you to understand, which means he's needing to clarify something that they misunderstood. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, your translation might have there the head of a woman is a man, but I don't think that's right. I think what he means is wife and husband. He's not talking about every woman to every man. He's talking about a wife 
to a husband. Every, uh, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, you have in verse 3, you have three pairs. And in the Greek, when you have three pairs like this, in the Greek language, when you have three pairs, the third pair is the most significant. The, the third pair is the point. The third pair is what governs how the other two pairs work. Okay? So, so whatever is being said here about headship, the word is kafale. Whatever is being said about one thing is the head of the other thing, it appears to me that, that this is not meant to be taken as demeaning in any way because the third pair says, and the head of Christ is God. Now, let me remind you of something. Christ is God. Okay? Of the same substance, a shared identity. So, I don't think the meaning could be that these, pair, these pairings here point to unequal relationships. I don't think that's the point. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, Paul will tell the Galatians, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in verse 12 here in, in 1 Corinthians of chapter 11, he's going to say at the end of verse 12, all things point to God or all things are from God. So I take it that whatever is being said here about headship, it is not meant to be taken as demeaning. Okay? Now, verse 4. I think what Paul is doing here is that in verse 4 and verse 5, he is now quoting the Corinthian theology. That this is what the Corinthians were teaching. I want you to understand something that I said about headship. Verse 4 and 5, this is how you have applied it. And so this is their words. This is their practice, their theology. He's quoting this back to them. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. That's what they were saying. And for us to feel the impact of this, what they were saying is this. If a woman prays with her head uncovered, it is equal to her shaving her head like a disgraced and shamed prostitute because that's what you did to women who were caught in the most unsavory of activities in that society was you shaved their heads that's what they were saying and I think in verse 6 what Paul does is he brings 
the conclusion to its absurdity. And he says back to them, okay, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. He brings it to the most absurd of the conclusions. Okay, you, so you're saying, you're really saying that if she doesn't pray with her head covered, it's the same as having shaved her head? That's what you're saying? Now I think he picks back up verse 7 through 10 with Corinthian theology. Listen to it. I think this is the way they were applying what Paul was saying. For a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Hmm. Verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, let's talk about this for a second. I think Paul's quoting them. I think he's quoting them in verse 4 and 5. I think he's quoting them in verses 7 through 10 because they had adopted this practice in the church that women needed to cover their heads and men couldn't cover their heads. And you say, well, why would they do that? Well, I don't know. If we're asking and answering questions, you realize, well, this practice is not discussed anywhere else in the New Testament. It, it does not appear to me that that practice, this thing, would have come from Paul. It's not addressed in any of his instructions to any of the other churches. It's not a part of the story of the church in Acts. And then I ask the questions, well, I wonder, does the Corinthians have a history of doing things that other churches don't do? And I have to answer that question, yes. Remember, this whole letter's being written because they're asking Paul questions about the things that are going on, and Paul has heard reports, and you have divisions amongst them. You have baptism scorekeeping. You know, they were making distinctions about themselves, about who it was that baptized them. None of the other churches were doing that. They were boasting about how smart they were and sophisticated they were. They were embarrassed of Paul. They thought they were spiritual because of the things they were doing. They seemed so right to them. But as we already looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, they were justifying, it appears, visiting the temple prostitutes. It doesn't appear any of the other churches were doing this. In chapter 7, we see that they were abstaining from normal relations in marriage. None of the other churches were doing this. It doesn't appear that in chapters 8 through 10, where the church was trying to police everybody about what you know, they bought from the grocery store and what they kept in their refrigerator while others were hanging around at the idols, uh, at the temples, worshiping the idols. It doesn't appear the other churches were doing this. 
I gave you one more example. If you've got your Bibles open, I'm still in chapter 11. Let's just go to the very next verse after this passage and listen to what Paul says. He says, beginning in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Here are some things. He says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. You're getting drunk at the communion table. Other churches weren't doing this. Were they doing things that other churches were not doing? Yes, and all of this to say the Corinthian church had some problems. And it's usually, it appears, and it's not saying this is definitive, it's the male leadership in the church who has some crazy idea. And they were imposing things on everyone else that other churches were not engaged in. I also say this because look at verse 11. I think Paul now here picks up and he wants to correct what it is that they have been saying. Notice the conclusion that I think the conclusion of the Corinthian theology is because of all this, because of this teaching that we took from you, Paul, in, about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that we've concluded this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And not only that, the angels are watching. You better watch out because the angels are watching. Now, Paul begins in verse 11 with a contrastive conjunction, nevertheless, it's the Greek word plan. It's only used 30 times in the New Testament. And each time it appears to say, okay, you have said this, or this is the thing that's, that's being talked about, but this thing now trumps this thing. What I'm about to say is greater than this. And he says this in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. And in some ways, Paul is saying just the opposite of what is recorded in 7 through 10. Maybe just the opposite of what they'd been saying. You've taken my teaching from Genesis 1 and 2, I think Paul is saying, and your application of that has been, we need to make a distinction, and women need to cover their head and show this act of, sign of authority and, and all these things. Um, and watch out, because angels are going to get you. Although he has said earlier, we actually judge the angels. We will judge the angels. And Paul says, regard, irregardless of your, what you've just said here, let me tell you, in the Lord, woman's not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. That's his conclusion. One woman came from a man. As it turns out, every other man since then has come from a woman. 
We are not independent of each other. We are interdependent upon each other. Because all things are from God. Now in verse 13, he uses a rhetorical question. Judge for yourselves. Is it appropriate for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now think about this for a second. Our response is to go, well, this is the Bible. Of course, we should say, well, no, she shouldn't do that. And then you think, really? It, so, it's not okay? And the questions are, well, maybe this is publicly. You know, maybe it's in a corporate setting. It's, it's not specific that he's talking about that. Maybe it's okay for a woman to pray however, whenever. Because that would be our theology, right? To, to go in prayer to God. Then he says, verse 14. These are rhetorical questions. I think his tongue is in his cheek. Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now stop right there. Do you remember Acts 18, 18? I think the Corinthians, when Paul was with them, and he says as much, they, they were embarrassed of him. Said, Paul, you look like a, we, we wished you looked more like a Roman philosopher. A Greek philosopher. We wished you walked and looked more like the Hellenists. Instead, you look like a hippie Jew. Really? Why don't you let us support you? Why don't you let us put you up in a fancy apartment? And he said, I'm, I'm not taking any money from you guys. I'm making tents. Or I'll take support from the poor churches. I'm not taking money from you guys. I, I don't want anything to interfere with the gospel coming to you. But here's what we do know. Paul had long hair when he was there. And so I think when he says, oh yeah, don't, and by the way, I know how you feel about long hair. It's a disgrace, isn't it? But is it? Well, my grandmother would say it is, but. Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, is there glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering, or maybe better, instead of a covering. Her hair is given to her instead of a covering. Now, verse 16, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If you're wanting to make a deal of this, hey, Corinthians, nobody else practices this thing you're practicing. Nobody else is doing this thing that you're doing. And I think in this, it helps us to, re it helps me to now go, I don't have to change or do gymnastics or jump around. This is in line with how Paul has been writing to the Corinthians and certainly in sync with the behavior of the Corinthians. And Paul now addressing something that applies to all of us. 
And it goes back to the end of chapter 10 where he says, listen, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do that to the glory of God. That we're reminded that there's an order in worship. When we come to worship, listen, our rights are not supreme. My preferences aren't supreme. Jesus is supreme. All that we do is for him. So what we do and how we interpret, all of this is for the glory of God. And if we use Scripture or a worship setting or some office of the church, you know, your pastor, an elder, Sunday school superintendent or whatever it is, or, or some spiritual gift, which he's going to talk about in a couple of next couple of chapters. And if we use any of those things to elevate ourselves, and in elevating ourselves, that usually goes hand in hand with putting someone else down. If in any way we're using Scripture or our office or a, a, a worship or our spiritual gifts to elevate ourselves, we're doing it wrong. Because over and over and over again, Scripture says this, the advantage goes to the other, not to me. We've talked about over and over again the last several weeks, Philippians chapter 2, consider others more important than yourselves. Have this mind, which is Christ's, the advantage goes to the other. And so as we read and understand Scripture and as we gather with one another and seek to love each other, we have to keep in mind the advantage goes to the other. I'm here not for my good, I'm here for your good. And in seeking your good, what I find is that my good comes back to me. I am here. What does Jesus say? It's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we've come to do. To love God and to love each other. We certainly haven't come here gathered as sinners in need of the grace of Jesus to police each other about behavior. We've come here to worship Jesus, to confess our sins, because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we need more than anything. It's the air we breathe. It's the only hope we have. Jesus. That's what we've gathered about this morning. And I think that's what Paul's point is to the Corinthians. You've become so distracted about everything else, you're missing it. If you don't have love and you don't, that's what he says. You're, you're like a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. It's all vanity. 
Bless my shot. That's how I think we're to read 1 Corinthians 11. That's how I think we're to understand Paul's correction to the church and is helping us understand how do we, how do we take truth and make sure we balance the truth and not make one truth the whole truth about anything. But that as we come together, we love one another as we worship God. All right, if you would, would you pray with me? Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. I, Lord, I pray that we have heard from your scripture far more than anything that's come out of my mouth. And everything that doesn't accord with your word and doesn't honor you and is that your Holy Spirit cannot use to edify us. Father, I pray it would burn up and be forgotten. And so, Father, I pray that you turn our eyes upon Jesus. And for anybody here this morning that has never done that, to sit here and be honest and say, you know what? (laughs) Jesus is not my Savior. My hope and trust that the weight of my life is not it's not in the fact that Jesus is my Savior. Then, Father, I pray in this moment you would overwhelm them with your love, with their great need. Father, that even this moment they'd catch the glimpse of the gospel, of your holy word. See your son Jesus become their sin and nailed to a cross and died their death, died my death, laid in my grave, and three days later rose to new life, conquering death. And that, Father, that's the hope that you offer us, it's the invitation that you're giving this morning. And I pray, Father, that if there's some one here, and very likely there is, that's never said yes to that, that, Father, they would. So we trust you with this, all of these things, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, well, if you would stand with me, we'll be dismissed. We'll be back there in the back with the security if you want to come talk to me. (laughs) No. May the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you. We'll see you next week.